0: And currently we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Isn't this pretty cool? I mean... Being able to get together like this—I mean, I praise God that we have this opportunity to gather together as a body of believers in a family. We're all extensions of one another, extensions of Christ in that way. Mm-hmm. So it's—it's—it's it's, it's nice to build each other up on a weekly basis. It's nice to be a part of this. I, I'll admit, and you've heard me say it before, this is the highlight of my week, and it's not because I like to talk. I don't. I'm an introvert. I'm not an extrovert. I would rather be under the table, but I do it just because God's saying you got to do it, so I do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's—it's. It's, I look forward to this. It's the highlight of my week because I get to be with other believers. And, you know, so often in this life we can feel alone. We can feel like we're detached from others. And it's it's nice to have a weekly reminder that that's not the case. So, all right, I'm, 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 I'm pumped right now. I'm feeling pretty good. <laughs> all right, Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. Last week we looked at verses 1 through 6. This week we're, God willing, going to get through verses 7 through 21, the end of the chapter. By way of review, though, I want to take you all the way back to chapter 12, so you're probably going, wait a minute, I just turned to 15. Now I'm, now I'm having you turn to Genesis chapter 12. And the reason for that is because chapter 12 is the first time that God appears to Abram. All right, God appears to Abram in chapter 12, verses, uh, starting in verse 1. Now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your kindred and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And that was the first appearance that we have recorded here in Genesis of God appearing to Abram. And then the second appearance you find over in verse 7 of chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 7 says, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your descendants, I will give this land. And then over in chapter 13, you have a third appearance. And the Lord said to Abram, this is chapter 13, verse 14. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I give to you and to your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I will give it to you. So, that was our third appearance that we have recorded as God appearing to Abram. So, here in chapter 15, we have the fourth appearance. So, verses 1 through 6, we looked at last week, like I said. And that was, if you could call it part A or part 1 of this fourth appearance. And that discussion that God had with Abram over in that section had to do with descendants. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven, and count the stars. So it's probably nighttime, right? So count the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he, this is Abram, believed in the Lord. And he, this is God, this is the Lord, accounted it to him, Abram, for righteousness. All right. That's not the end of this appearance, though. That's just where we got up to. So we're continuing on from that point forward. One of the things that you notice in each of these appearances of God to Abram is that he starts with a little bit of information, right? He starts with a command. He says, follow me, basically. It's basically, do this. One little bit of information. Go. Follow me. That's kind of what he starts off with. Isn't that kind of the way God starts off with us? Follow me. And you know what we see? When Abram obeys that initial command, God begins to unfold the picture by giving him more information as it goes. All right. So we're seeing that as it goes on. So you begin to find out, go, I'm going to show you a land. And then it's go, I'm going to give you a land. And then it's going to be, I'm going to give you this land and descendants. He doesn't have any kids yet. All right. And so it's beginning to unfold in the picture. He's beginning to see it more clearly as time goes on. So here in chapter 15, it's about descendants in verses 1 through 6. And it's about the land in verses 7 through 21. Verses 7 through 21 is primarily concerned with the land. Somebody mind reading verse 7? And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Excellent. Thank you, Steve. Steve, what I want you to do is I want you to keep that verse right there. And for everybody else, turn to Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. Here's what I want to do. I want everybody to see the similarities between the way that verse sounds and the similarities with the verse that we're going to in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. All right, Steve, what I want you to do now is go ahead and read that verse again and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Now listen to the similarity in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Do You see that the introduction in this statement in verse 7 is very similar to the wording that we see over in Exodus chapter 22. This is God introducing himself. All right, He's introducing himself to Abram and he's describing himself in a certain way by saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out. And over here in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out. We're beginning to see this is just starting to unfold. And we've seen kind of along these lines before where this whole description of of what's going to happen to Abram and his descendants is going to kind of be repeated in the Exodus. All right. So that whole description of Abram being brought out of Ur of the Chaldees. Abram lived in Ur of the Chaldees for a long, long time. God called him out of there. God moved him from that place that he lived for a long, long time, and he had to take a long journey. And in taking that long journey, he ends up coming to a land that was promised to him. And then in doing so, in leaving Ur of the Chaldees, he was kind of like leaving a land of bondage to false gods. The reason God called him out is like, I want to do something pure with you. Over there in that land that you're living in, it's, it's all about all kinds of false gods. We're going to move you and start something new with you, and we're going to start it with the one true God. All right? That's what you see in the situation later on with his descendants. When they're called out of Egypt, right, it's a land that they've lived a long, long time. When they're called out of Egypt, it's a long journey. When they're called out of Egypt on that long journey, they end up going where? To a land that's promised to them. When they end up going to the land that's promised to them, they end up leaving the bondage that they were in to the false gods, the false religious system that they had in Egypt. So you can see there's kind of a mirror image of what's going on. There's a pattern there's a pattern that you see in Abram's life that's repeated later on for his descendants. Okay, So in verse 7, then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give this land to you to inherit. By the way, Exodus chapter 20, where it has that similar language, anything significant about that chapter? It's the Ten Commandments. <laughs> yeah, that's a significant chapter. <laughs> All right. So God seems to introduce himself using that same language in a very significant place right there before the Ten Commandments are given, right on the cusp of giving the Ten Commandments. Verse 8. Somebody am I reading verse 8? But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? Excellent. Thank you, Dave. Here we have a statement where Abram's saying how. How is this going to happen? How is it going to be? All right? You don't find anywhere that God condemns him for asking that question. And in fact, the way that it's worded in, in the context, he's not doubting. It's not unbelief. He's asking for more information, more details. And who can fault him for that? I mean, when God calls us, if God is to issue the call to us, Come follow me. We'd be like, where? Where <laughs> where are we going? What do you want me to do? Really, it's come follow me. If he wants to give us more information at that time, that's up to him. We may or may not get it. All right? So it's about obeying whether or not he gives you an answer. In this situation, he ends up giving him an answer, and we'll, we'll find it as we go, as we look further on. Verse 9. Somebody mind reading verse 9? So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Excellent. Thank you, Esther. In reading that, what do you have here? You're, is, is this is a petting zoo? He's <laughs> having him go gather up some animals. How many animals do we have mentioned there? Five. We've got five animals mentioned there. So picture in your mind now, picture a heifer. All right. So a heifer is a female cow. It hasn't yet given birth to a calf. All right. So you've got a female cow and then you've got a female goat, three-year-old female goat. The heifer is three years old. The female goat's three years old. Then you've got a three-year-old ram. A ram is a male sheep. If uh, A male sheep, if it's young enough, uh, you'd call it a ram, lamb. So we've got a lamb here. All right. So you've got a cow, a goat, a lamb, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So you've got five animals. So so Abram's asking, all right, so how's this going to go? How's this going to work out? And God says, go get me five animals of a specific sort, of a specific age. This is sounding kind of strange. It's probably what I would be thinking if I was in Abram's shoes. So we get there to verse 10. What does it say in verse 10? And then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds. Excellent. Thank you, Levett. So here we have a really strange situation. What is going on here? It's implied that God gave him these instructions. I don't think Abram took it upon himself to go, oh, God wants me to bring these to him. Maybe he's in the mood to have them cut up in half. You know, they'll <laughs> fit on the barbecue better. No, that's not at all what's going on. All right. It seems to be implied that God has given him instructions to bring these animals, and the next instruction is to cut them in half. Do you suppose it takes a little while to cut a cow in half, (laughs) all right? Yeah, it's probably messy. Oh, oh, okay, I don't even want to picture it. But you you get what I'm saying. It probably takes a little while. Here's what you're going to end up with. You're going to end up with a pathway with half of this animal, half of this cow, this three-year-old heifer, half on this side of the pathway and half on the other side of the pathway, all right? And then next in line would be, you know, you've got your three-year-old female goat cut in half. Half on the left side, half on the right. All right. And then the next one down is you've got the three-year-old lamb cut in half. And then the birds, you've got the birds not cut in half. So you've got a pathway. This is not a pathway I want to go down. <laughs> this is almost like a valley of the shadow of death stuff. This is kind of weird. Here's what it was. Back in that day, if you were a king and you wanted to make a treaty with another king, you might do something like this. And the reason for it is because you would arrange these animals in such a way that when the the two kings would pass through, they're taking upon themselves a self-curse. They're basically saying, if I break this contract that we're coming up with together, this agreement, this covenant that we're coming up with together, if I break it, let me become like those, all right? That's how seriously I'm taking this agreement, that if I break it, I'm saying that I would deserve to be treated like these animals here and cut in half. All right. In Jeremiah chapter 34 in verses 18 and 19, you have a similar situation where it's described where they do the same kind of thing. And it was, it was multiple people that were passing through. I mean, you were talking big groups of people. It says their dead bodies would become meat for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. All right. That was, that was what you were doing as you were saying, let me become like one of these if I break this. All right. So you could see how that would be probably more impressive than a handshake. All right? If you shake somebody's hand and, and you break your promise, I mean, what, okay, big deal. But if you remember the day you walked between the halves of the animals, ugh, awkward, you know? <laughs> Might make you think twice, right? So that was the situation that we're setting up here. All right? Verse 11. Somebody, am reading verse 11? When the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Good, thank you, Mike. Here we have a situation with the vultures coming down. Vultures are unclean birds. Let's just say that right out of the get-go. They're from, uh, in the book of Leviticus, you find out they're unclean. All right, so you don't want vultures eating parts of your sacrifice because these are the symbols of the covenant that, you know, God is giving you instructions to set up for. And uh, so let's let's not let the vultures consume the symbols of the covenant. All right. Vultures, another thing to realize about vultures is they only, they're only active in the daytime. All right. But I thought this might have been nighttime. Hmm. Uh, we'll have to address that in a few minutes anyway. Uh, but you've got the vultures coming down, and Abram chases them away, keeps them, hey, you know, you guys are harassing, you guys are trying to consume the sacrifice, get out of here. Verse 12, somebody might be reading chapter 15, verse 12. That evening, as the sun was going down, Abram fell into a deep sleep. He saw a terrifying vision of darkness and horror. Excellent. Thank you, Jennifer. So here you have the situation where, what time of day is it? The sun, is going down. the sun is going down compare this with verse 5 what do you read in verse 5 what time was it over there Night. it's nighttime right mm-hmm. when do you see the most stars after the well after the sun's gone down right I mean so how do you reconcile this if this is the same day then you would have go out count the stars and then go gather up the animals And then cut the animals in two. That's going to take a while. Oh, and then the vultures got to come in. And you got to chase the vultures away. And you do that all before sunset? I mean, I get you can see stars before sunset, a few of them. But really, is that going to be impressive if God says, count the stars? And there's only like three or four up there right now because it's not even sunset yet? Is that impressive? That's not an impressive promise. What's going on? We've seen the passage of time. It started at night it started at night and moved into the next day it moved into sunrise it moved through the hours of daylight that's when you gather up the animals when you cut the animals when you arrange the animals the vultures come down you scare the vultures away and now it's come almost to sunset of the next day do you get that so we've got what two days no esther saying no why do we not have two days? right the biblical perspective of when a day starts is at sunset this is all in the same day yom all right it's all in the same day as the bible reckons a day and we've had this discussion before when does a day begin we're like oh it begins at sunrise oh wait or is it 12 a.m aren't those just arbitrary the bible teaches the time it starts is actually sunset from sunset to sunset so everything's in that same 24-hour period that same day All right, so everything's in the same day so far. All right, so now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell. Mine says fell, fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. This word fall, it means it came upon him from above. Okay, so the sleep comes upon him, and the dread comes upon him. All right, this deep sleep—the same. This word that's used for deep sleep here—it's the same word that's used for the deep sleep that Adam experienced over in chapter two, verse twenty-one. Do you remember when Adam fell asleep? What happened? Anything <laughs> significant happened to Adam when he fell asleep? He lost a rib. <laughs> he lost a rib, right? And, and yes. if you see, <laughs> yeah, let's not forget that part. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That was a fair trade. <laughs> All right, so it's the same word that's used over there to describe what ended up happening to Adam. The interesting thing, too, is when this passage continues to go on, even though he's in this deep sleep, he's still aware of what's going on. All right, he's still aware. And that makes me wonder, was Adam aware when the rib was taken out? I'm not sure, but I tell you what, he knew when he woke up, so either he was aware or he was told, right? Because there wasn't somebody standing by going, oh, by the way, God took a rib. What? He took a rib. You know, there wasn't anybody to tell him that. All right, so it was either God told him that what had happened, or he was aware of what was going on. Abram here seems to be aware of what's going on. Have you ever had those times when you're so asleep but you're still aware? I had one time. I went to the doctor. I'm also afraid to admit this story. I went to give blood. I was showing my daughter how to give blood and how to be, you know, brave and whatnot. So I go to give blood at the at the place, and they stick this lady sticks this needle in me, and she misses, right? She, she's like, oh, I'm sorry, I missed. And I'm like, this is a big deal. You need to find the right place, <laughs> you know, because I, I already knew what my history was. And so she goes, oh, let me try again. And I'm going, okay. And I go, see, honey, this isn't too bad. And my daughter at the time is like five, all right? <laughs> so then she sticks me again and she goes, ah, I still can't seem to get it. And then she starts to wiggle the needle really? in my arm and I'm like... I- <sighs> I said, you need to find the right place the next time. (laughs) And so she goes, oh, okay, I'm really, really sorry. And she pulls it out, and she sticks me again and goes, oh, that wasn't it either. And I go, I'm going to faint. (laughs) And she goes, oh, you're going to be okay. And I go, no, I'm not. And I saw the darkness moving in, and it went down to a little pinhole of light. I could barely see, like, a sign across the room. And then it went... Blink, and I was out. <laughs> I totally fainted and passed out with my five-year-old daughter sitting right next to me. <laughs> oh my God. And I'm in this sleep, but I hear this, Mr. Smith, Mr. Smith. And I remember thinking, that's not the nurse. That's the doctor. He's trying to wake me up. Mr. Smith, Mr. Smith, I don't know that I can wake up. Mr. Smith, wake up, wake up. And I opened my eyes. And so I was aware of where I was, but I was out, you know. And I wake up, and then it's like the rest of the reality hits me. And I go, where's my daughter? You know, and I look, and she's right there. And she's coloring, but she's going like this. Looking <laughs> of the corner of her eye, like, this is scared me to death. And it totally backfired on me as to what happened that day. So here we have Abram. He's in a deep sleep, but he's still kind of aware of what's going on around him. This statement about the horror, the great darkness, or your different translations will have different ways of expressing that. This is not uncommon when you're meeting God. But it's interesting in Abram's life, this is the only place where that is described. Mm-hmm. But you read about dread and horror and fear that comes upon people that God appears to. It happened to Adam when he was in the garden after he would sinned. It happened to Jacob in Genesis chapter 28. It happened to Moses at the burning bush. It happened to the Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai. You've got fire and smoke. It's like the mountain is on fire and the people are going, I don't want any part of that. Moses, you go up there. We're afraid, we're afraid that we're gonna die. So this this idea of fear coming upon somebody upon meeting God is not uncommon. In fact, that seems to be the norm. Genesis chapter 15, verse 13, where God starts his reply by saying, no, certainly. And this is in response to what Abram had said over in verse 8. How shall I know? And God is saying, no, certainly. He's addressing that very issue of how shall I know? No, certainly. The word there for descendants is the word for seed or zera, zera in the Hebrew, or it can be translated seed or or seeds. It can be singular or plural, all right? And it's often used to describe descendants. We've seen it several times as we've been moving the way through Genesis. And then that word there in my version says strangers. Some of your other versions might have something different. Anybody else have something different? Steve, I bet you have something in ESV that's different. Sojourners. Sojourners. So there you have strangers or sojourners. A sojourner or a stranger is somebody who's a temporary inhabitant. This is not their home. They're just passing through, okay? An alien or a foreigner is what you would have for this word here. This idea of being sojourners, that carries on over into our lives. Your citizenship is not here. We're just passing through. I, I've got something, kind of a visual aid. I don't know bring in visual aids, but this is my backpack. And I wanted to identify it some way as mine. But I didn't necessarily want to have my name on it, so I ended up getting a name tape with something that I wanted. This is, I mean, this is how I live my life. I try to live my life recognizing this world is not my home. We're just passing through. We need to do the things that we're set here to do, as Ephesians 2.10 would teach us. But in the meantime, recognize your roots don't go deep here all right don't get yourself too rooted in this world we're to set our sights outside of this life beyond this life we're to be sojourners treated as sojourners here on this earth and then look forward to our heavenly city our heavenly habitation all right your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them my version says serve them some of your other versions will say enslaved all right NIV has enslaved or become servants the ESV has servants will serve them or be enslaved to them, and they will afflict or mistreat or oppress them for 400 years. So God is giving more details now to Abram. Abram has expressed and shown obedience, and God is rewarding him by giving him more information. Is it a reward in the sense that he earned it? No, it's not that at all. Imagine how this would have been received by Abram upon hearing this. This is the first information he's received that is going to be 400 years. He's received information that he's going to have descendants. And he doesn't exactly know how that's going to work out yet. But now he's given the additional information. It's going to be 400 years before this promise that God's giving to him is going to see its fulfillment. At least this part of it. All right? So you probably would think of Abram hearing this news and going, wow. I mean, wow. But think also about the first audience to read this the book of genesis first five books of the bible genesis exodus leviticus numbers deuteronomy traditionally thought to be written by moses moses writing this after the exodus moses writing this to the audience that's fulfilling this at the tail of the 400 years the people that are coming out when they first hear about this how big is the wow for them when they end up reading this passage or hear this passage, that, wow, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. Hey, that sounds like us. And we'll serve them. Oh, that sounds like us too. And we'll afflict them. Oh, that's us. All right. 400 years. Hey, that's us. Think of the wow factor there. All right. So it's probably pretty impressive for them to be reading it as well. By the way, this is uh, it says 400 years here. Somebody mind turning to Exodus chapter 12, verses 40 and 41? In fact, if I could get a volunteer for that one, I've got two other passages to look up as well. So who wants that one? Great. Steve's got Exodus chapter 12, verses 40 and 41. Who wants Galatians 3.17? Somebody mind reading Galatians 3.17? Esther's got Galatians 3.17. And then who would like Acts chapter 7, verse 6? Levette, thank you very much. All right. So listen, and here's what I want you to notice. How many years? We've got here, it's obvious, it says 400 years, right? I mean, 400 years. So, Steve, what does yours say? The period of the Israelites' stay in Egypt was 430 years. Wait, I mean, what? 430 years. 430. So Steve's passage that he just read is 430 years. Esther, what does yours say? Year and where? Galatians 3.17? huh. All right. In this I say, the Torah... Which was 430 years later cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before God in Christ that it should make the promise of no effect. So maybe there's a mistake here in Genesis. Then I mean Genesis here in 15:13 says 400 years, but Steve says 430. So then it would be one passage versus another, and then Esther backs it up with 430. So we have two votes for 430 and one vote for 400. What does your say, it? Mine says. Mm -hmm. Is that Acts 7-6? Yes. But God spoke to this effect, that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land, and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. 400 again. So we've got two votes for 400 and two votes for 430. This sounds like a contradiction in the Bible. Oh, no, we can't trust the Bible on anything now. (laughs) Isn't there a jury instruction that says that? If you find somebody to be unbelievable, then you can throw out the entire testimony, right? People that like to point out contradictions in the Bible are fond of pointing out this passage among their list of passages where they think it's a contradiction. The problem with that is a contradiction has to have no explanations as to how you can reconcile that. There's no shortage of explanations, actually, as to how you can reconcile this. I'm going to give you just five of them just in passing. Number one, one explanation is that the 400 is a round number and that the exact number is 430. A second explanation would be that it's 430 years from Abram to the Exodus rather than The family that ends up moving into exodus so you've got an additional 30 years that they would tack onto there that would make their stay in egypt a little bit less because you've got a lot more than 30 years between now and the time that they go down to egypt but they say that you know that's that's another possibility it could fit another one is 430 years from the last affirmation of the promise so god gives the promise to abram but then he follows it up with the same promise to his son isaac And he follows it up with the same promise to his son, Jacob. And Jacob is the one that moves down to Egypt. So maybe a 430-year clock starts there at the time of Jacob moving down into Egypt. And then while they're in Egypt, you have the 400 years. Or another one, a fourth one, is 430 years in Egypt, but the first 30 years were fine. And if you remember the story, when they went down there, Everything was fine. Joseph was the hero of the day, and they lived great. They were living in the land of Goshen. They weren't slaves the whole time. It's not like they came down and go, okay, we're going to put you guys to work right now. Now there was some passage of time. We don't know how long it was. So one proposal is 430 years in Egypt. 30 of those were fine, and the other 400, they were enslaved. Another possibility is that the call of Abram in Genesis chapter 12 was starting the 430-year clock. And that what ended up happening is by the time of the birth of Isaac, and Isaac was weaned, all right? Because it actually specifically mentions the weaning of Isaac. He's the first guy who's born in the land, lives his whole life basically in the land, all right? And that starts the 400-year clock. That 4.30 from Abram moving in, 400 from the time of Isaac being weaned, because he's the first one born in the land. By the time he's weaned, he's finally able to kind of be on his own. He's not dependent so much on his parents that he can take food for himself, and maybe that's symbolic of being able to be self-sufficient or something, and he's in the land, and that starts the 400-year clock. And that the time that they end up spending in this land of Canaan, which is not yet theirs, mm-hmm. is about 215 years, and the time they spend in Egypt, which is not theirs, is 215 years, and I add them together, you have 430 years. So there's five possibilities it can't be a contradiction if you've got possibilities as to how to reconcile them, and here we have five of them. All right, moving on to verse fourteen. Somebody might be reading that. I will punish the nation; they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. Excellent, thank you, Dave. Isn't it interesting how God specifies the amount of time, but he doesn't mention. He doesn't even give a mention as to what nation it's going to be. All right, here it's just in generic form. It's not even identified. It's just nation. All right, as if it doesn't even warrant being mentioned. Also, the nation whom they serve, this is that same word that we saw in the other one, or enslaved by, I will judge. And we see that later on with God sending the ten plagues upon Pharaoh. That's the form of judgment that he's alluding to here in verse 14. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Great possessions, if you know the story of the Exodus, they do. I mean, the neighbors are like, here, take my gold, take my jewelry, take, take it, just take it, get out. <laughs> all right? And they end up giving them all kinds of great possessions. What you also see in that uh, being the capstone of it, in a sense, is that you see that's kind of a mirror image also of what happened to Abram when he went down to Egypt the first time. Do you remember seeing that when we were in chapter 12 and 13? Abram went down to Egypt, and on the way, he says to his wife, hey, you're so beautiful. I'm afraid they're going to kill me. Uh, Why don't you pretend you're my sister? Sure enough, Pharaoh ends up taking Sarai into his harem, and God judges Pharaoh. God judges him and Pharaoh ends up saying, hey, you know what? Get out of my presence. And he ended up giving him lots of gifts for Sarah because he thought he was his sister. So he thought he was paying for Sarai for taking Sarai, his sister, when it's in fact his wife. So you had a similar situation there. You've got oppression under a Pharaoh. You're in Egypt. You end up getting great possessions and you end up leaving. So there's another mirror image thing. So you've got patterns that repeat themselves as we go through the story. Moving on from there, verse 15. Somebody mind reading that? Now, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. Excellent. Thank you, Esther. You shall go to your fathers in peace, or you shall go to your fathers. This is a very common way in the Bible of speaking about passing into death or, or dying. All right. So if you see this phrase again, as you read through your Bible, that's all it's talking about. The good old age, the words there translated good old age, it actually means having silvery white hair having silvery white hair instead of old age so there's a little paraphrase there Dave's pointing at his hair and uh, one of the things too that make a mention of as Dave's pointing to his hair is that white hair was associated with wisdom nobility and authority wisdom nobility and authority so you, you know what you don't have to dye your hair you know what uh, keep it gray wisdom authority and no- nobility all right Moving on from there, though, one interesting thing that we see here is that it specifically says that he will go or he will be buried in peace. In peace, you shall be buried at a good old age. You know, his son, Isaac, and his grandson, Jacob, and his great-grandson, Abram's great-grandson, Joseph, it says of all of them that they were of a good old age, that they were of an old age but it's Abram alone that it says in peace. They all died wealthy, they all died at, at an old age, but Abram's the only one that it says in peace. Verse 16, but in the fourth generation they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. In the fourth generation, So, so wait a minute, if you're going down someplace for 400 years and that's only four generations, how many years per generation? A hundred, that seems like a long time, right? I'm thinking of my own family, just use my own family as an example. I was born when my mom was 20. She was born when her mom was 20 and she was born when her mom was 22. So in my family situation, when I think of a generation, it's usually about 20 years, all right? Here we have 100 years, what is that all about? The Hebrew word for generation there is the word Zor and it can be translated variously. There's different places where it can mean different things. When they were numbered in the children of Israel, they started at the age of 20. So it was considered a generation that was 20 years. But then when they were wandering in the wilderness, it was 40. And then here in this passage, it's implied that a generation is 100. And it actually fits because Abram ends up having Isaac at 100, exactly the age that you would think. But really, four generations to span 400 years? You know what's interesting is that actually was fulfilled. Because Moses, the guy that led them out of Egypt, is the fourth generation from Levi, his great-grandfather, that went into Egypt. It was four generations spanning their time in Egypt. Pretty cool. Also, moving on from there, they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God seems to know what's going to happen in the future. <laughs> God seems to know there's a particular people and they're on a particular path and they're not going to deviate from it. And when the time comes, I'll judge them, but it's not yet to that point. It's as if God sees and God knows and God keeps track and then God judges. This is a different pattern than you and I would experience. If we're in Christ, God doesn't keep track of our failings and our shortcomings and our sins anymore. But for those who don't identify themselves and aren't part of that family, God's watching and God knows and God's keeping track and God judges. You do realize though that we do get judged too. Those that are in the family of God, we do get judged as well, but it's a different judgment. They're judged whether or not their works are good enough to get them to heaven. And guess what? Nobody's works are good enough to get them to heaven. They're going to be found wanting. And the judgment that they're going to experience is the wrath of God. For those of us that have the blood of Christ that's paid for our sins, we're no longer judged based on our works to see if we merit salvation. We're judged based on our works to see if we merit rewards. So when we're judged, our works are weighed, and then our rewards are given us, but the salvation's already taken care of. The salvation's already assured, okay? Moving on from there, the Amorites. Here in this place where it uses the word Amorites, Amorites is sometimes used to mention a specific people group, and it's sometimes used to mention a generic overall, you know, the group as a whole, a large group as a whole. Here it's clear from the context that it's being used in that latter sense. It's being used to describe all the people of the land of Canaan, basically. And then it also tells us something, too, about God's judgment of people, that A, God has a lot of patience. Right, He's willing to wait 400 years before he judges. I wonder how long he's waiting in our country. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, uh, one thing I should mention is that when it talks about the iniquity of the Amorites, God has standards. And some of God's standards that describe things that can get you vomited out of the land, if you will, All right, as the Amorites will be vomited out of the land. That's a phrase that's using to say God's wrath will come upon them. All right. God's wrath coming upon them is warranted, and it's not just limited to the Amorites, but it's limited to anybody that's outside the parameters of living for God. In Leviticus chapter 18, verses 24 through 25, it says, Do not defile yourselves with any of these things, for by all these things the nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you, for the land is defiled. He's talking, this is God now, talking to the people that are going to be moving into the promised land. They're going to be fulfilling 400 years later what's being described to Abram over here. So he's saying that the lands defiled themselves. How have they defiled themselves? It says this, For the land is defiled, therefore I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out its inhabitants. All right, what a great word picture. What are the things that defiled it? If you look at the verses immediately before that, it largely has to do with sexual behavior. And it has specifically to do with sexual relations with anybody with which you're not married, And it also includes, and it's not limited to, there are other ones as well, it includes sexual behavior between same-sex partners. All right? These are things that defile the land. (laughs) These are the things that call down the wrath of God upon you. The land as a whole is going, the people, the inhabitants of the land are going to be punished because of the behaviors described, including adultery, adultery, And homosexuality. Do you suppose God's laxed his standards at all since then? (laughs) Do you suppose God's going, oh boy, all right, well, I'm just going to have to tolerate that kind of stuff because it didn't work before. It's not like those things ended. We see that kind of stuff today. Maybe that means we're in that period where God's forbearance, he's been keeping track. He sees and he knows and judgment's coming. And we're just in that in-between time. Oh, that's scary. Wait a minute, though. Would God judge a whole nation Mm -hmm. if there's still a few righteous people in it? I'm sure that if you went through the Amorites, that you could find a nice grandma. I'm sure you could find a nice little kid who hasn't done anything wrong yet. Mm -hmm. Did they feel the wrath of God too? God judges not just individually. He also judges nationally. And us as a nation should be shuddering to consider that because those describe us. John Hartley says this, when people persist in sinning, the pollution mounts up making the land so sick that in time the land vomits out its inhabitants. God usually accomplishes this by empowering a nation to be an instrument of judgment to drive out the sinful occupants. In this situation, it's going to be the Jewish people that God is using to drive out the sinful occupants. But don't think that they're immune because later on there's going to be another nation that god uses to purify the jews that he uses to drive out the sinful jews and they're kicked out all right so he doesn't have anything wrong with using a nation that you might say oh they're terrible those those people that came in and kicked out the jews they were terrible from the perspective of the bible the Assyrians, yeah they were brutal but you know what they were god's instrument at the time to do a work in judging Moving on. All right. How are we looking on time? We should probably stop there. All right. We'll have to do the rest later on when we get there. We'll do verse 17. That's a good place to stop. All right. All right. Let's go ahead and pray and then go our separate ways to be the light in the world, right? Yes, All right. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you, Lord, for this opportunity. We thank you, God, for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you've also blessed us to be able to be born in a society and at a time where we're all able to read. Lord, that hasn't always been the case. God, you've granted much to us, but to whom much has been given, much will be required. I pray that you would help us to realize that the riches that we have at our disposal, we have access to your word in so many different translations. We're able to read and understand, and we're able to speak. Lord, we're not mute. Help us, Lord, to make the most of our time here on earth as we're just passing through. Whether it's to speak a kind word to somebody, speak a challenging word to a relative, or whatever it might be, to be praying, Lord, for people, to be evangelizing, to be discipling, to be exercising the gifts of the Spirit. Help us, Lord, to make the most of the time that we're here on this earth. Thank you, Lord. Go with us now. Bless us in our endeavors and help us to bless you in our endeavors. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, you guys have a great